Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Cool Zone Media. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, your favorite podcast for a daily dose of dystopia. I am, once again, your guest host, Molly Conger. Today I'm talking to a good friend of mine and one of the brilliant minds behind the melting of Charlottesville's Robert E. Lee statue. Dr. Jelaine Schmidt is going to tell us a little bit about the history of the statue from its planning and placement to its current state, melted into ingots in an undisclosed location. I'm joined today by Dr. Jelaine Schmidt, a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia, the director of the Memory Project at the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute of Democracy, and a steering committee member at the Swords into Plowshares Project. As both a scholar and an activist, Dr. Schmidt has been a leading voice in the Charlottesville community for racial justice and against the Confederate monuments that once stood here. The Swords into Plowshares Project announced back in October that they had successfully dismantled and melted down the bronze statue of Robert E. Lee, it once loomed over the Market Street Park in downtown Charlottesville. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about the past, present, and future of that hunk of bronze. Thanks for having me, Molly. It's great to, great to talk with you about this. I don't think I've called you Professor Schmidt since uh, 2008 when I took one of your classes. It's, it's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah. Now we just, we just call each other comrades, you know, because <laughs> we're out there in the streets and in city council and, you know, doing the things. So before we get to the final fate of that melted bronze, I want to mm-hmm. sort of ground this in the history of that particular object, right? This isn't just any Confederate monument. This is the statue that made Charlottesville a household name, the statue that brought Unite the Right here, a statue mm-hmm. that killed someone. It's a statue that had history in that park for a century before it came down. And before it was removed, you led some really incredible walking tours of the downtown parks to try to tell the story of the way those statues existed in those spaces for generations, why they were there, what they meant, what impact they had on the landscape and the people in the community. 
Um, I think I went on about a dozen of those walking tours and I learned something new every single time. So can you talk a little bit about the political atmosphere in 1924 when that statue first went up? Yeah. Well, should, you know, just kind of to back up a little bit, like the history of Charlottesville, Virginia, at around the time of the Civil War, over half of the population of the local population was enslaved in Charlottesville and surrounding Albemarle County. And Black people were actually the majority of the population of Charlottesville until about 1890. And then it's, it, you know, has been on this steady uh, decline, you know, since then. So to to, to think about it, if you look at the history of Reconstruction in Charlottesville, um, Black people came out and registered to vote and got politically organized very quickly in the 1860s already and um, were very influential in electing a Black delegate from Charlottesville to go to the Constitutional Convention. This is when, uh, in order to rejoin the Union, all of the former Confederate states had to get their state constitutions up to snuff. And so um, Virginia, as did the other uh, former Confederate states, you know, had a had a constitutional convention. Um, And our delegate from Charlottesville was uh, James T.S. Taylor. He was a black man from Charlottesville. He'd been in the United States Colored Troops and he had uh, a coalition had coalesced around him of some uh, progressive whites or savvy, savvy whites, you know, that that, uh, wanted that threw their lot with him and former enslaved people. And went and, you know, and, and represented us and, and put, you know, Charlottesville in the mix for starting a new state constitution in Virginia for finally getting public schools. You know, that's one thing that we can thank, you know, all those reconstruction governments around the South, you know, for getting us those public schools that we wouldn't have otherwise had that we didn't have before, you know. So I say all that backdrop that if you read the, the historical sources of the time during Reconstruction and post-Reconstruction, in Charlottesville, the white elites were quite upset with the state of affairs that had emerged after the Civil War, in which um, formerly enslaved people were in leadership, political leadership, you know. And so, when you look at the history of, of you know, then finally, as 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 the new, um, you know, there, there was a, a Reconstruction era Constitution that that started all those wonderful things such as, uh, you know, public schools, you know, and, and voting rights for black men, you know. But then as the neo-Confederates or their Confederate sympathizers start to get the upper hand again at the end of Reconstruction, and in Virginia, that's, you know, more or less in the, in the 1880s, you know, and then there's this steady imposition of Jim Crow, you know, that, that's going into, you know, in Richmond, they put in their giant General Lee statue in 1890, you know, there. And then in 1902, there's finally, there was this final push that pushed Black people out of political office in Virginia. And in 1902, a new Jim Crow state constitution was put into effect in 1902. And so you have to, when you think about all of these statues being installed, we have to see it as this, it's really resentment politics, you know, that, that's come about. That is, if you look at the speeches that are delivered at the installation ceremonies of these statues. And this is where I'm, I'm getting to our General Lee statue in, in Charlottesville specifically with this. If you go back and look at those at the occasion for the day. And these, these installation ceremonies, they were a time for the neo-Confederate organizations, the hosting organizations, 
organizations, in our case, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, the United Confederate Veterans, and the Sons of Confederate Veterans, okay, were, were the hosts, you know, for, for this event. And this is a two or three day occasion. So there's like delegations coming in from all over the state, you know, and, you know, there's this buildup, you know, in the days ahead, you know, leading up to uh, the installation. This was in uh, May of 1924. You know, so you see, oh, this delegation has arrived from Roanoke, and now the governor is coming in, and now this, and now, you know, and so, you know, the, the town is just a Twitter, you know, that this that, that they are hosting the statewide reunion of the United Confederate veterans, and there hardly are anymore at this time. They're, you know, quite elderly at this point. So, they're, you know, there's quite this, you know, uh, celebration, and this is also an annual meeting of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. And so the fact that Little Charlottesville is hosting a statewide reunion, you know, of, of the statewide, all the chapters, you know, of these neo-Confederate veterans is a big deal. And then, and then, you know, they're doing this, um, you know, and within this context is when the unveiling of this statue is occurring, you see. And so it's this, it's this whole buildup of kind of lost cause nostalgia, which, which is occurring. And in the speeches at the Lee statue unveiling ceremony, it's very instructive to listen to what is being said. You know, um, you have, of course, you know, kind of local dignitaries and statewide, you know, dignitaries are there. The uh, the national uh, commander of the Sons of Confederate Veterans um, is, is there. He gives a speech. He he was also a Klansman, you know, you know. So this says something there that you know, 1920s Charlottesville, you know, elites were not averse to rubbing shoulders with a known Klansman, you know, who had been invited to give a speech. You know, other invited guests. Uh, one was a, a a minister who had, was a graduate of the University of Virginia, and it was you know just kind of. Uh, revealing, you know, what he said in his, in his speech, you know, when he, he was talking about, he said that, that the days of reconstruction were worse than war, oh, God. you know, um, you know, and, and so th this, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Does beg the question. Um, and that, yeah, goes without saying, of course, that this is, you know, almost exclusively white audience and, you know, the white school kids, school has been canceled for the day. The university has classes, you know, um, canceled for the day. And, you know, and the businesses are closed. I mean, this is just, you know, quite the community event that's going on. So, yeah. So, Reconstruction was worse than war. Um, you know, we're celebrating today, you know, the, you know, the spirit of Lee, the regeneration, you know, of our values. And, you know, there, there's just a lot of of uh, conversation in these in these inaugurations ceremonies, you know, for the unveiling of these statues that hearken to uh, rebirth and regeneration, and and you know, and also you know, kind of recalling you know the days of old, you know, and the and the values you know of, of our veterans, you know, who are now you know, of course, in dwindling number, you know, these Confederate veterans who are there, and so this and, and, and as I said, there's been this whole buildup, you know, for days and days, you know, I mean, of course, for the planning committee, this has been going on for weeks and months, you know, the fundraising and, you know, reserving, you know, blocks, you know, at the hotels and, you know, and all guest houses and all this kind of thing, you know, banquet halls, etc. you know, but it's, it's also revealing that this installation ceremony for the Lee statue, it is bookended with clan activity, an uptick in clan activity before and after the installation ceremony and why 
while we don't have well we do know but you know one one clansman who you know the the uh commander lee no relation to the general lee but uh but uh the the president of the sons of sons of the confederate veterans you know but but to just see all of this uptick in lost cause nostalgia and then these these acts of intimidation of you know clan rallies um clan posters that were you know put flyers around town you know uh and this sort of thing it it just it, it there the atmosphere of intimidation you know that this must have been for black residents you know of the time uh you know it it just it really gives you pause you know just just seeing how public space was commandeered, you know, by these people, these neo-Confederates, you know, to kind of uh, relive what they considered, you know, kind of the glory days, you know, um, um, of the nation, you know, and the kind of values to which they want to return, you know, and 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 this sort of thing. So, yeah, so this this is going on, you know, in the 1920s, as you know, Charlottesville is, you know locked into Jim Crow by then, you know, um, and, and we're 22 years into that Jim Crow state constitution, you know, this is the milieu, you know, in which, in which this is taking place. Now, of course, black people have their own institutions, you know, that they founded, you know, namely churches, um, the Jefferson School African American, um, what's now the African American Heritage Center, but the Jefferson School, which was a, a, a school for black children, um, and uh, uh, the founding of the high school of, of a black high school. Um, so this was, you know, the the black community had its own uh, nodes of organizational strength, you know, and and goings on that were happening, even as you know there were these pressures, you know, going on with with the consolidation of Jim Crow. Should also mention that you know at this at around the same time in in spring of of 1924. Uh, was the passage of the Virginia Racial Integrity Act, and this was the, uh, the the kind of the codification of the so-called one drop rule, which designated anyone with a perceived um, uh, admixture of of, of uh, African American or or Native American ancestry to be designated as colored, you know, and, and kind of bifurcating the, the population of Virginia into two categories, white or colored. And so this is also occurring, you know, in 1924, there's a very, you know, there's very much of a, a legal, uh, you know, a kind of strengthening, you know, of, of in terms of the tools that are being used uh, to separate uh, the races, quote unquote, you know, and what we're seeing then in the parks, you know, in our public spaces were, uh, you know, kind of designating um, what were, well, not public spaces. I mean, they were, you know, kind of designated, you know, almost shrine-like, you know, uh, uh, as uh, white spaces, you know, and that that this is, it, it's a kind of broadcasting of who's in charge is what's going on. And I think, you know, today the Sons of Confederate Veterans very much separate themselves from the Klan, right? They were a heritage organization. We're not, we're not the Klan, but you were talking about this sort of Klan activity leading up to the unveiling of the statue. Mm-hmm. And I was actually just looking back this morning at some of the archival newspapers from that week. And so when mm-hmm. the, the day the statue was placed, if, you know, a few weeks before the unveiling, it was still covered, it was shrouded, you know, it was leading up to the big day. So that in the front page of the Daily Progress, the day that the statue was put in the park, that little snippet appears in the newspaper right next to a headline about a cross burning. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Like these things are happening on at the same time, right? And there was absolutely a big clan march through town that week. And I think one of the it's easy to forget that these historical moments were experienced by people whose words that we still have, like people who were living in this moment. I think one of one moment in your historical tour that really has stuck with me all these years is um, an anecdote about John West, who is, um, for the listener, is a, a man who was born into slavery and in this era was one of the largest black landowners in the area. He was a successful businessman. And when the Klan marched by that week, you know, they're wearing their hoods. You don't know who they are. It's, you know, it's mysterious. It's intimidating. But he knew who every single Klansman was because he was their barber and he recognized their shoes. And that that just feels so intimate to me, right? That he's he's looking at the shoes of these men that he knows. And then tomorrow they're going to come in for a shave and a haircut. And he has to say, you know, yes, sir. Thank you, sir. That's right. That's right. And so if you can just imagine like, you know, and here, you know, John West, you know, so here's one of the most, you know, influential black residents of Charlottesville at that time. And he has to live. Yeah. In this, you know, that there's this, this atmosphere of intimidation that, that, yeah, his clients are coming in, you know, they're coming in every 10 days or 14 days to get a, get a trim, get a, you know, touch up, you know, here and there. And, and yeah. And, and he knows that these, you know, that, that, that these are, you know, the folks who are kind of maintaining, you know, that this, this public order, you know, that is so, uh, you you know, that, you, you know, you better not step out of line. And so just to have one's public space, you know, be demarcated, you know, in such a, a, a demonstrative way, you know, in a monumental way, you know, Quite literally, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, is is uh, it really illustrates what's going on, you know, and and even a, a, in you know relationships like that, you know, that that are so like you know intimate, a barber and a client, you know, and and knowing you know what your clients are up to, you know, and and how you better stay in line, you know, it's scary. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. 
That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash news. That's LifeLock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. That's what that statue was here, right, for for almost a century. So skipping ahead that century, right, when the statue finally came down in 2021, so not not too long ago, right? So the city solicited proposals for what was to be done with it, right? A lot of cities put them into storage or moved them to battlefields or um, mm-hmm. museums didn't want them. People say, well, why can't it go to a museum? Museums didn't want it, right? Yeah, so so be- because uh, of my work, I get pulled in on a lot of different statue, <laughs> statue-related uh, consultations, let's put it that way. And I, I was on the George Rogers Clark committee at the University of Virginia when the university was trying to decide what to do with the very hideous, uh, I called it the genocide trophy. It was a, a statue of the George Rogers Clark, the the conqueror of the Northwest. It literally said that on the facade, you know. And uh, so we were in consultation with Native tribes. We, we were contacting uh, the the various tribal nations who suffered the onslaught of the so-called Northwest campaign. So these tribes that are in what is now Illinois and Ohio, um, et cetera, you know, and just asking them, you know, would you like to kind of weigh in, you know, on this? And, and you know, really sad. Genocide is a real thing. Some folks are just no longer there, you know, right. or, you know, were, you know, became such a, a remnant, you know, as they were so decimated that, you know, they kind of, you know, morphed into, you know, other tribes. Others were, you know, went on, you know, later on to, you know, to uh, um, Oklahoma or other places, you know, just dispersal, you know, really was, you know. Um, you know, so we're in this, you know, kind of year-long process trying to figure out what to do with UVA's uh, own statue there. You know, also a gift of Paul Goodloe McIntyre, you know, the same donor who gave the Lee statue to the city. Uh, gave this George Rogers Clark statue to the university. And so in doing that committee work, we made appointments with all the big players, all the, you know, and here we are, we're from the University of Virginia, you know, and we've got this, you know, big, big monument here, you know, the Smithsonian, the, you know, and, you know, we talked to, not, not about this one, but in another instance, talked to, you know, the Civil War museums, battlefields, you know, I mean, we contacted all the responsible, you know, the, the folks who are going to curate this in a, in, in a responsible way, you know, because, you know, that's, it, it, it is a monumental work of art, you know, it has stood here for a century, uh, it does have historical value of a sort, you know, and, and I mean, and, and, you know, and as someone who has, you know, teaches history and researches history, that's my, that's my inclination. My initial inclination is, oh, yeah, well, we should preserve. I mean, that's, you know, kind of where I go to. 
but the problem is it's a very practical one. This, this is a material object that is taking up space, literal and figurative space in the world. And it's six, uh, 6,000 pounds. Yeah, yeah. The very materiality of it, it is taking up space. And you, you have to figure out what space is it going to inhabit? This is a very practical question. If it's not in your park anymore, where is it going to be? We contacted all these museums, you know, and in, in several, you know, different consultations I've been a part of where we've been trying to get rid of statues. Nobody wants them. Nobody responsible wants them. And, and, and you know, and even if they did have an inclination to want to, just the expense of it, you know, who wants to reinforce their floors to put a, you know, century old, you know, artistically not exemplary, you know, monument in it, you know, and then care for it. I mean, museums have very limited budgets. They're nonprofit organizations. Why should they be expending all this energy? I, I love the, the, uh, my, my, my colleague, uh, Aaron Thompson, uh, from, uh, John Jay college at, at CUNY, you know, she's a art crime professor. And she, she said, you know, she talked with somebody at the Smithsonian who said something to the effect that, you know, we're not America's attic for racist art. <laughs> You know, that's that's not our role. It's like, you know, and it, it kind of does throw back the responsibility to individual communities, too. It's like, you know, you have a part to play in this, you know. And so anyway, yeah, so we tried to do the responsible thing. We contacted all, all the responsible actors out there. They don't want them. And so then the question becomes, okay, the city also doesn't want it sitting on its back lot for forever in perpetuity. You know, they've got things, you know, they've got equipment there. They've got things that, you know, this shouldn't be sitting there. Where is it going to go? Again, this is a material object that exists in the world. It is a problem, you know, like what physical space is it going to occupy? We're just such brute practicality here. I don't think people quite get <laughs> what it means to, to deal with this. And the only people who want it are the very people who shouldn't have it, you know, who want to take this object that's caused us so much pain and to make a shrine out of it, you know, that would continue to attract bad actors, you know, and that it would, you know, and I, I'm a religious studies scholar. So when I, I use, I don't use the word shrine lightly, right. you know, I know what kinds of activities, you know, uh, these engender, you know, and the sorts of emotions that are, you know, evoked, you know, in the ceremonies around, you know, objects that are, that are held to be sacred, you know, that, that attract, you know, kind of devotees, you know. And so you really have to think about what does it mean to be a, a responsible ethical actor? You know, it's like now we're, we're in grown up world now. It's like, okay, it's like we want, you know, it's like there is a material object. Where are we going to put it? You know, it's like having a junked car. What do you do with it? You just let it sit in your driveway and make your neighbors mad at you? Right. And these Confederate statues are sort of the, the, the junk cars of the lost cause, right? Because they're not rare. Right. Like, you know, right. especially right after Unite the Right, a bunch of cities all of a sudden were like, we got to get rid of these things. And so That's suddenly right. the market is flooded with Confederate statues. Where are you going to put them? That's right. At that, and that is the question. And they are, and I've, I've used this, this metaphor before, the, the, the metaphor of toxic waste. You know, it's not responsible to say, oh, we want to get rid of our toxic trash here. And then ship it down the road to the next town and say, okay, well, we're done with that. That's not responsible to make that next town have to deal, you know, or maybe there, maybe there were some people in that town that wanted it, 
you know, but that's not fair to the other people to have to breathe in that air and it's drink poison. that water that's yeah. that's poisoned by this. That's not that's not being responsible. You know what I mean? So it really is an ethical question, you know, um, what what space these toxic objects are going to inhabit. And so we were unable to find any responsible actors who would take this on. And so then it kind of, it's like, well, I guess it's kind of on us. We have to, you know, like, like the Smithsonian, it's like, we're not the addict for your racist trash. You know, it's like, it's, it's really, it's, it's on us. It's on communities to figure this out, you know, and if there isn't, uh, you know, some sort of organization that can responsibly curate this, you know, and care for it, then, you know, we really need to to think about it. And in the case of this Lee statue of Charlottesville's Lee statue, you know, there are about, I think there are about 16 monuments of, of Lee, like kind of equestrian monuments of this sort, you know, in the country. I can say with confidence that all of the others um, are of better quality than Charlottesville. It's and the I think absolute that's worst. Such an important point, right? Because people are like, well, this is you know an important historical piece of art. And that's no. true of some of them. Some of them are legitimate pieces of but this one is not. No. I mean, it, it looked like not. he was smuggling hams in his sleeves. Oh, well, yeah. So, yeah, it's in it's terrible. It's really a case uh, the the Lee statue from Charlottesville is really a case of too many chefs spoiled the soup, you know? They they the the the, the guy, you know, they the the original sculptor uh Schrady, you know, was commissioned to do this 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 work and he got behind on the commission because he was finishing another uh, another work of his, which is generally regarded as his magnum opus, which is a, a monument to General Grant. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. It's just like, it's sorry, perfect poetry, sorry, right? Lee, you gotta wait. I'm working on my best piece. <laughs> right, he finished a beautiful statue of Grant, and then he died. And then he died. He died, and and, and supposedly it might be apocryphal. I kind of like this tale that supposedly when he's on his deathbed, Shrady's on his deathbed, and, he, and, he, and he's still thinking about that unfinished Lee project. He was like, oh, mind the, you know, mind the cloth, you know, keep it damp, you know. Keep and, the plaster you know, wet, right? Yes, keep the plaster. He'd, he'd made a maquette. He'd made a model, play model of the Lee statue for Charlottesville for that next commission, the, the unfinished commission. And he dies. And so now it's like, well, you know, this is a problem, you know, for, you know, for the philanthropist and the community or the community leaders of Charlottesville who wanted this Lee statue. So they find they find a ringer, you know, <laughs> this, this young guy, you know, Leo Lintelli, interesting, you know, Italian immigrant in the 20s, which is kind of, you know, when you think about, you know, all the hate that was being whipped Back up. before Italians you know, were white, right? <laughs> that was before Italians were white, you know, but he was, yeah, kind of direct from Italy and from a sculpting background. So maybe they made a little exception for him. I don't know. Anyway, so this young guy, you know, Leo Lintelli, he takes over. And, you know, he probably needed a little more practice. I don't know. It just it didn't, it didn't turn out well. It like the Lego not. tail on Traveler, like a chunky. Yeah, no, it's just, yeah, um, there, there was, we had a sculptor from around here who himself works in, in bronze and does monumental work. And he kind of just kind of came and looked at it. And he was just, you know, it just everything's out of proportion. The gauntlets on the glove are too thick, you know. The sword is too long. The, the tail is too fat. I mean, his you know, feet are Lee's, bigger than his head. 
Yeah, that Lee's head on top of his shoulders, it just it looks like, you know, kind of like almost a transformer toy or something. I mean, it's just really weird, you know, proportions. It's just it just really was not very well executed because apparently the maquette, the model that had been made uh just was completely destroyed. The model the original model by Schrady was completely turned to dust. And so Lintelli, the successor sculptor had to work from the drawings that 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 remained, you know. And, you know, it just didn't didn't really go very well. And and here's the thing. The, even the the boosters at the time, that is, you know, the folks that were planning the in, for the installation of the Lee statue in the 1920s themselves did not think it was very well executed. We have diary entries from the Master of Ceremonies um, of the installation ceremony, RTW Dukes. And he's, he says... He writes in his, in it's like day or two before the installation. And he says, went on a walk, you know, tonight, you know, went by the park, you know, saw the Lee statue. I do not like it. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> this is the guy who's, please the MC at the, oh. at the unveiling ceremony in, you know, the next day or two. <laughs> How embarrassing. You know? Yeah. And there's op-eds even, you know, also they're saying like, wow, you know, that, that just doesn't look good at all. You know, um, so and and these are the these are the support. These are the neo confederates, the one at there, and 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 they've they've noticed that too many cooks spoiled the soup, you know. And then apparently the murmurs were sufficient that one of the speakers at the installation ceremony, if I can hearken back to that, you know, right. at, at at the Lee installation ceremony, you know, I guess felt compelled to address the complaints that were apparently circulating. And he said, you know, I'm talking about the proportionality problem that I mentioned before, that just so many, it's just very disjointed, you know, so many parts of the, of the monument are out of proportion to other parts. And so this speaker at the installation ceremony said, you know, there are those who say that the pedestal, you know, upon which the Lee statue is, is, you know, is set is too small. But I say the world itself is too small a pedestal for General Lee. <laughs> I just like, oh yeah, good save. Good save. Good yeah, save. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the proportions, I mean, I mean, the whole thing, the plinth was too small. The statue was too large for that tiny park. It just, it was never a good spot for him. It was never a good spot. So anyway, all that is to say, it's a very, it's a very poor work of art. Just, just on, at an aesthetic I mean, and I'm not one that that wants to remove, you know, kind of any moral considerations from aesthetic. There are some people, philosophers, who want to parse that out and this sort of thing. And but even if you believe you could do that, <laughs> which I do not, <laughs> you know, it's just really a, a a not. It's like having a high school art project, a C. I give it a yeah. C. It's a high school art project that it's not was, worth saving. Right. No. Like even it's even not. if it, it had not been this sort of lightning rod in our community, right? That even if this were a, a you know a, a beautiful piece of art that was worth saving, I don't I, I don't know. There's there's two separate concerns, right? Like it's not yeah beautiful enough mm-hmm. to put into a museum regardless, right? But then also preserving this object in any capacity just allows it to sort of continue to be this lightning rod. Like, uh, you know, for anyone anyone sort of still asking about, well, what's the problem with recontextualization? Why can't you just put it somewhere else? And I think that's sort of a broader conversation about these statues in general, but for Mm -hmm. our statue, for for that Robert E. Lee statue, right, that it had become sort of a pilgrimage site for vigilante violence. Oh, yeah. And I don't know that, like, just 
out for for the listeners in radio land, <laughs> just for folks out there um, listening, that even after the 2017 Unite the Right rally, this statue stood for another four years in our park while we mm-hmm. had to wrestle through uh, legal issues, legislative and judicial uh, entanglements that prevented Charlottesville from removing that statue, even after the Unite the Right rally. And during that time, that four-year interim, it's crazy to think about it, huh? Four years. Um, that for four years after after Unite the Right, it was still there. Right, like this, this statue made everyone else realize they needed to get rid of theirs, but because of, of state law and these lawsuits, we were still stuck with ours. Charlottesville was still stuck with it. And there were, and these, you know, different groups, um, some of the same constituencies that had attended Unite the Right continued to come and make their pilgrimages to the Lee statue and to antagonize community members by putting up their propaganda near the statues um, and even, uh, you know, going to uh, the fourth, you know, the the crash site on 4th Street where a neo-Nazi drove his car, you know, into a crowd of of Charlottesville uh, counter-protesters and killed community member Heather Heyer. Um, these these uh, uh, fascists, you know, who would make their pilgrimage to Charlottesville would ma- make sure and st- and still do upon occasion uh, go to Fourth Street and put up their propaganda there as well, as if to kind of further antagonize the community at a site of our trauma, you know. And so the, 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 it was very clear that this statue would just wherever it would be, it would continue to be a beacon. For these people. And so really it was just kind of a question of responsibility. Knowing this, uh, knowing that no responsible historical or artistic institution um, has the capacity or desire to take it in, what does one do with it? And that it's it's not an exemplary piece of art. There are 15 other monuments that are of better quality of Lee. We're not going to forget him, <laughs> you know, <laughs> if if this particular specimen goes missing and the way we see it. We're doing the art world a favor because, as I've said, it was really, you know, not a very good, um, well-executed piece of art. So, you know, with in considering all of that, you know, in seeing in prior removals, uh, for instance, the Johnny Reb, the court, uh, the courthouse um, Confederate soldier statue was removed, and there was kind of no plan in place about where it would go, and so it ended up, you know, getting sent to a battlefield that is. Um, Maintained by a group of of Confederate leading folks that 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 uh, seem to favor uh, kind of lost cause interpretations of the war. So we'd seen that happen already the year before, in twenty twenty. That when there isn't a plan, it's one thing to remove it, but then where does it go? Again, this is a physical object that exists in space, in physical space. Where is this material object going to go? If you don't have a plan. The, then um, bad things can happen. Right, the path and, of and least resistance. Opinion, the yes, path of least resistance right. is just to, if someone says, I will pay to move this and the city is right. paying to store it, then that's an easy answer. And you can't like, let oh, that okay, be the take answer. It. Right. Yeah. And so that that went. So when the when the county, uh, Albemarle County removed the Johnny Reb statue, the Confederate soldier statue from in front of the courthouse in I think that was September of 2020. Right. And we saw how quickly that got sent to this battlefield that is, you know, maintained by these, you know, kind of lost cause type folks. That's when Andrea Douglas and I, and Andrea Douglas is the director of the Jefferson School African American Heritage Center here in Charlottesville. We said, 
you know, we still do not have the legal authority to remove Charlottesville's Lee statue. But we anticipated that that perhaps, you know, in the in the coming year, we might. I said, we need to start making plans now about what can have what where the statue should go after its removal. Because otherwise, the same thing that happened to this Johnny Reb, to this Confederate soldier statue, just kind of getting sent down the road, you know, to whatever entity organization that wants it, the same thing's going to happen. And we need to have a plan in place in order to kind of capture that so that it, so that it doesn't just kind of continue to circulate and to do harm. So that was our motivation. So we kind of, you know, in September of 2020, that's when we really, you know, put the pedal to the metal on on starting the planning of this, you know, and we, and mind you, we did not even get permission until I think it was uh, April the 1st of 2021, when finally the Virginia Supreme Court ruled in favor of the city of Charlottesville in our efforts to remove uh, the Lee statue, you know, so this was, you know, six, seven months before we even knew if we, if we could do this, but we said, let's start making plans. And so we started having these kinds of conversations, you know, with battlefields with museums with foundries you know just just you know just learning you know kind of the nuts and bolts you know what are the possibilities here and it turns out it's very complicated Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right. So I know there have been sort of jokes around that was going back over some of the public discourse over the years that we've been sort of joking as a community for years. Like, why don't we just melt it? Why don't we, why don't we just melt it? Yeah. But when did that become a real idea? 
Like when did it, when did it, when did that sort of coalesce into something that felt possible? I think, you know, in September 2020, I think when the Johnny Reb statue was removed and it went on, you know, to the Shenandoah Valley Battlefield Foundation, you know, and they have this horrible plaque that they're putting up that talks about how these men died for Virginia. You know, and it's like they died for 38% of Virginians were enslaved at that time. So how how are you saying that they, they died for Virginia? Also, this is from Albemarle County. The majority of people here were enslaved. So how did... How did the people supposedly represented by this statue die for Virginia, fight for Virginia? You know what I mean? So we just like that was so disturbing, you know, in September of 2020 when that happened, that that's that's really when I just really started working in earnest, you know, calling foundries. So the idea was always melting. I mean, it wasn't until then because, see, this is funny. When this whole controversy started in 2016, when Zion Bryant brought up her petition, you know, to to consider uh, removing these statues, the the position of the activist then was just move the statue. Go back and look right. at the signs and at the t-shirts. And it says, hashtag move the statue. We just wanted it moved. Just take it from the Central Park and put it out in McIntyre Park where there's more space. Don't have it downtown. I mean, that was kind of like, that was the edgy position. <laughs> you know know? and then they they should have taken the opportunity back then see right exactly that was the opening bid and you should have took it you know (laughs) just these that offer's not on the table anymore yeah exactly that 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 would have been good it would have been in McIntyre park on the outskirts of town so and so you know when that when the when, you know, the city appointed this Blue Ribbon Commission on race memorials and public spaces to have a series of public meetings, to hear from community members what they wanted to have happen with the statues, should they be removed, should, you know, what should happen. And, you know, and and this Blue Ribbon Commission, you know, hands their final report to city council, you know, and then city council takes a vote, you know, Charlottesville City Council in February of 2017. (laughs) And surprising... Many people, not some of us who were in the know, but one of the council members said, yes, I would like to propose a resolution to remove the lead, not just move it, not just recontextualize it, because that's, you know, if you go back and read that report, it's actually fairly, there's a couple of different suggestions, like, well, you could move it or you could just do this. And, you know, and city councilwoman, you know, Kristen Zaka said, I would you know, make a motion to have it removed completely, you know? So it's like, whoa, okay, we're, you know, we're making steps, you know? So it was, it was about, you know, it was getting from move, from move the statue to remove the statue as in take it away, you know? Um, And then it really wasn't until after all the strife, you know, I mean, I, I think there were some people all along who, you know, would say tongue in cheek, oh, we should just melt it down or, you know, or, we, you know, should, you know, but, but the thought, it was just so, uh, you know, talk about there's much talk of Overton windows these days, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but they're just, they're just, w- when that was being said, it was always in a kind of jocular manner, like, oh, of course that could never be, but <laughs> we should melt it down. It was this kind of offhand, right? It wasn't serious because how could that ever be? Right. I mean, that right. really that was behind. But what it takes is somebody taking that seriously and like going through the practical steps of what would that look like. And so that's what I started doing in September of 2020. It's like I keep hearing people say that they want it melted down. What would that look like? 
What would it how look would like? You physically do that? Yeah. How would this happen? I'm a humanities person. This was breaking my brain learning about alloys and you know compositions. You right, know, it becomes an engineering problem. Yeah, it really did. Yeah, I, and I did. I consulted with you know metallurgists, engineers, um, you know folks at at various foundries. You know. To, to, you know, consulting and say, well, you have to do this, you have to, con- you know, consider that. I mean, so yeah, I was really in, in the fall of 2020, when, we, you know, kind of in earnest started having conversations, you know, with, with foundrymen, and with engineers, with folks that work in bronze casting, you know, but most of the time, people didn't want to talk to us. Right. When they found out, oh, you want to do something with this with the staff. Oh no, they they just you know they were they didn't want to be involved in any controversy. Or we we would get someone who was on board with it. Yes, we're going to do it. And then, for instance, you know the company got sold, and the new owners were like, "What? Nothing to do with it," you know, or they won't call us back anymore, or no, or you know, th- I mean, just things just kept coming up. So it was hard to find anyone who would just engage in a serious way about the questions. And then even when you could, it was kind of like, you know, you'd get somebody for, for a little bit. And then it was like, you know, like the fish, it's like, you know, catch the fish would swim away, you know, kind of, I don't know. It just, you know, so it was, it was a lot of different conversations with a lot of different people, you know, um, along the way to figure out like, what are the, you know, literal and figurative nuts and bolts of doing this? You know, I learned a lot, like, you know, about standard width of trailers, eight and a half feet did you know that yeah Not eight and a half enough. feet yep right right <laughs> um you know and you know 53 feet long and you know and you know kind of what kind of what's the hauling capacity what's the payload you know how do you balance the load you know what is dunnage i mean you're just like all, all these things you know that that just, just the very practical steps that that one has to take to melt a statue and so it seems like you know, the conclusion that you reached was this object can't keep existing because the fact that it does exist will always be a problem. So the, the, decision, the decision was made that it needed to be destroyed. But what was sort of the, the process of thinking through what do we do with it now, right? Like what is the sort of yeah. the vision behind not just, yeah. you know, taking the statue down and putting up a different piece of public art, but a different piece of public art that is physically repurposed, right? That you've, you've remediated this material. Right, right. Yeah, well, we, we prefer the, the word transformed, you know, to, to destroyed or, or, I mean, it, right. is, it is, you know, definitely it is, you know, kind of morphing the material. It is taking the materials, you know, these raw materials and you know, transforming them into kind of usable, you know, kind of ingots, brick-sized, you know, pieces of of bronze so that they can be made into something new. It's not that we hate art. We want art. (laughs) Right. You know, Dr. Douglas's, her background is in art, right? Yes. Dr. Douglas is an art historian. I mean, we are the two most unlikely people to be in charge of such a project. I mean, I'm a religious studies scholar. It's like, I've spent years of my life, you know, studying, you know, how people, um, you know, make make sacred values and and specifically right, so how they gather around material objects that they regard so I don't, as sacred. I don't think that's unlikely at all, right? That this was an object of, of veneration for a very harmful yeah, cause. I mean, I, I and now you're sort of 
17 years, you know, researching a book about a uh, very beloved um, 400-year-old effigy of the Virgin Mary in Cuba. I don't know if you can see my book up here. Well, there's the Cuban flag. This right here is my book. Ah, whoop, I'm going over too far. <laughs> yeah, I see the Virgin uh, Mary back there. Yeah, anyway, so I, <laughs> yeah, so that's that's my book up, up here. Yeah, right here. This is my book, uh, Kachita Streets. I mean, if somebody, oh, and, and you know, and this has happened before, there have been folks, you know, iconoclasts. If somebody went and 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 destroyed her image there in that shrine in 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 Cuba, I I would be incensed. I would just I would be beside myself. I mean, it'd be like somebody killed, you know, a family member. I mean, you'd right. be on the next plane to get, you know, you would have to console people. I mean, a four hundred year old, you know, it would just be terrible. You know, um, you know, it doesn't have all the hate wrapped into it that these, you know, statues d do and this sort of thing. So what I'm saying is I understand that people have very tender feelings toward these material objects that they have had experiences around them that have bound them together. Uh, religiare, you know, the the binding, that's the original, you know, root, Latin root of, of religion, you know, is to bind, you know, I get that. Um, and so, yeah, I'm not a reflexive iconoclast, you know. Um, I'm a Catholic. I'm a, you know, I, I'm also a, you know, participate in these uh, African um, inspired religious practices and stuff that, you know, that put a lot of, uh, you know, um, emphasis upon, you know, sacred material objects. So I am kind of, I mean, it is kind of weird that me, I would be involved in this and that, you know, and, and Dr. Douglas, you know, but it's precisely because we know the power of these things and the we're eyewitnesses to what happened here, you know, that, that we know the power of it and so how to be responsible for it. And so to take something like that that was so harmful and to be able to, to, to use its materials to transform them and to make something that's meaningful and beautiful and that expresses our community's values and that includes people rather than kind of sets people apart, you know, or kind of, you know, symbolizing moments in our history where you know, over half the local population was completely debased, you know, um, to be able to take the, the material that, that was part of that and transform it into something else. It's just, it's just seemed like it just has a, a, so much potential, you know, and, and, and the, the name of the project is Swords into Plowshares, mm -hmm. uh, which comes from a verse from the prophet Isaiah uh, that they shall turn their swords into plowshares. They shall, turn their their spears into pruning hooks so we'll take these implements of destruction and of violence and we will transform them into instruments of of to cultivate you know sustenance you know uh you know you know um nutrients you know for a community i mean it just you know to just to just really transform it you know from from something so ugly you know, into something beautiful, you know, and we just thought, you know, let's, let's take the chance. Let's try and do this. Let's do something that's never been done before because none of these statues have ever been like, I don't think ever completely the Confederate ones anyway, have ever, ever been completely destroyed, you know, like this. They're, most of them are just in storage somewhere. And we said, let's, let's take this chance to transform. Let's be responsible, first of all, and not send our toxic waste down the road to another community. And let's try to do something transformative you know, for our community. And maybe this can also move the needle, uh, you know, in a national and international conversation about art 
and the reparative values, you know, potential reparative values of art, you know, and community building, you know. And so in our, you know, we're the Swords into Plowshares project, we're hoping to put out a request for proposals, you know, uh, to artists uh, this year in 2024, which is the 100th anniversary of when the Lee statue was installed, you know. Ideally, you know, fing fingers crossed. If you know, it, um, it would be wonderful if we could have a completed statue in in 2027, which would be the 10 year anniversary of the Unite the Right rally. You know, to to you know to have something else to uh, to give back to our community. You know, that's of lasting value. That um, you know, and, and for us, it's important that we write our narrative. There were people who attacked us. You know, who tried to kind of imprint on us, you know, a, a, some sort of narrative about what we were about and, and it also kind of, you know, reverberated in a, you know, national and international way. And we're really taking control of the narrative here. We're saying, you know, we, we are going to say who we are and we're going to express that, you know, and we do value art, you know, we want it to be an art that reflects our values. Right. I think this is a recognition that art does have power. It had the power to harm. It had the power to mm -hmm. to bring great harm to this community. But it was, you know, that art was harming people just by existing in that space even before yeah. Unite the Right. And now those same materials have hopefully the power to to bring some repair. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just the, the practical, you know, I think you were saying it started out as sort of a, a practical question is what do you do with this large object? And so the practical answer is, you reduce its size, you melt it down, you remove mm -hmm. it and you melt it down. But it's not just practical, right? There is there is incredible symbolic value in using that material, that yes. metal, right? The, I think in some of the articles you all talked about, um, as it was melting, there were impurities in the metal. So at, as the statue is being melted down, the impurities are being extracted from it. It's being purified yeah. and now yeah. it can be repurposed. It is, that's it really is. beautiful. Yeah, it is. Yeah, the slag getting pulled off the top and just yeah, just it it was incredible, you know, to to see for sure. And so at this stage you guys are um soliciting community input. I think there's a sort of a community survey out about sort of what parks people frequent, how they're using the parks, how they're engaging with the parks. Um, and yeah. you said this year there'll be a request for proposals for artists to sort of put forth their vision for this bronze. Right. And this is it's nice because this is all coinciding with uh, the city if Charlottesville has for some time wanted to do a renovation of, of, of its downtown park. So this is, and this has been a long time coming, but Years, far, yes. you know, Separate, predated, yeah. you know, all of this drama with the, with the statues. Um, but it's just really an, a nice opportunity to just kind of, for the community to just kind of take stock. It's like, okay, we're, you know, we're, what are we, you know, going on seven years out from Unite the Right, you know, we're eight years out from, you know, Zion's initial petition, you know, you know, this, the statue has been, you know, taken away, it's been melted and, and, and it, ju it just feels like a literal and figurative clearing of the land. You know, it, it just feels like, you know, people have asked, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, there's, you know, all that empty space at the parks. And I was like, yeah, isn't it nice? <laughs> it's just kind of nice to like, I mean, to, to just kind of, I think it's nice to just have, you know, just push the pause button for, you know, in terms of things that are there for several years and just kind of allow our, our minds to open. You know, just like the 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 space itself, and to to just imagine what that space can look like. I think it's really instructive, and I I wish more communities could have the opportunity to do this. Actually, yes, by you know, for instance, taking that survey, 
you know, uh, that, that community members in Charlottesville are doing now about, you know, yeah, how, how, you know, where, where do you, what parks do you go to? Um, what activities do you engage in there? What do you like? You know, what would you like to see more of? You know, this sort of thing. It's, it's great to, you know, to consider this, you know, th- this is something that has been, you know, America's, uh, uh, you know, the United States is, uh, you know, public parks has, you know, been something that, uh, you know, since the 19th century is something that's that's been a, a real gem, you know, in some of our, our public spaces, you know, in, in some of our cities. And, you know, and this is something to, you know, to celebrate. And and it's it's nice to be able to kind of take stock and to really, you know, think about how public spaces can express our professed values, you know? Right. Instead of sort of reacting to hate, like taking a moment right. to envision not our reaction to or, you know, what we don't want, but think about what we do want in that space exactly. and what would what would serve our community. And I think that's um, sort of where the project is now, right? Just sort of envisioning a positive mm-hmm. future rather than trying to remediate a negative past. It's, it's And it's so nice because I felt like we were fighting, fighting, fighting for so many years. You know, we're in court or we're protesting or we're going to lobby at the General Assembly or now we're going to city council. I mean, there was just, you know, all, all you know, so, so fraught. And so now it's just so freeing to like, oh, to be able to imagine, you know, and to be thinking forward. Yeah. And constructively and creatively. That's a great feeling. So how can people sort of keep up with Swords into Plowshares, um, stay up to date on the project and its its progress? And more importantly, how can they support Swords into Plowshares? Yeah. So you can visit sipseville.com. That's S-I-P-C-V-I-L-L-E.com. So sipseville, that's Swords into Plowshares, Seville. And we have um, occasional updates there with uh, news stories about what, what we're doing and uh, upcoming meetings. Um, which will be happening at the Jefferson School, uh, where we'll be, you know, uh, kind of presenting results of, uh, of, uh, you know, surveys that we've done, yeah, and uh, and also um, visiting speakers who will be coming to talk about, you know, what what does art mean in public spaces, you know, so we'll be able to kind of, you know, talk with. Uh, you know, some experts that have come in, you know, to advise us on, on, you know, how to think about, about what we want in our, in our, in our parks going forward. And can people make donations to SIP on the website? Yes, on the website, there is a portal right there on, on sipseville.com. Definitely uh, welcome that as well. And those donations go towards sort of the, the ultimate creation of this piece of art? Correct, Right. Right. It is uh, yeah. not not cheap to work with that much. Bronze. It is not, yeah. So we're we're you know putting together a, you know fund to pay the artists you know for the commissioning the artists you know we're also um, applying for you know grants from foundations and this sort of thing too. But of course there are other expenses associated with uh, you know processing materials and yeah uh, and all that. So yeah. So that is s i p c v i l l e dot com slash donate. To make yes. sure that that artist gets paid. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, Jillian, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. And um, looking forward to seeing our, our new beautiful piece of art, hopefully by 2027. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great. Well, thank you for your interest, uh, Molly. And thank you to um, all the listeners and supporters out there. It means a lot uh, to us that, you know, your interest in us and, and your support. Appreciate it. <laughs> 
I think we all loved those photos of uh, Lee's melting face. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it is iconic. I got to say, it's iconic. You know, I, yeah, we'll always uh, have that, have that memory. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. All right. Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.